Hello, and welcome to Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and today I'm joined by Dr. Peter Previs, a man who aspires to become known as the Willy Wonka of the water industry. Peter is a civil engineer and a social scientist who manages the data science function at Coliban Water in regional Australia and runs leading courses in data science for water professionals. He is also the author of a number of books, including Principles of Strategic Data Science and the recently released Data Science for Water Utilities. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Genevieve. It's great to be here. It's fantastic to have you. Data science unicorn is one of those terms that's been bandied about quite a bit over the last few years. In your books, you describe data science unicorns as those people who sit in the middle of the data science Venn diagram. And I'm sure most of our listeners have seen this before. This is the one that describes the data science skill set as being the intersection of domain knowledge, mathematical skills, and computer science skills. Does that sound about right? Yeah, that's uh, that's a model I really um, like to use quite a lot to, to explain data science. But it's, it's also a little bit controversial, as you, as you are alluding to. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I can imagine. But it's it's a nice, like all models. I think you said the other day you were quoting George Box. George Box, yeah. All models are wrong, but some models are useful. Exactly, and that's that's something to live by as a as a uh, engineer dealing with practical issues every day. But as you'd expect, the people who sit at the centre of that Venn diagram they're pretty rare. In fact, some people would even go so far as to describe them as mythical, hence calling them unicorns. And in this episode, we're going to look at approaches organisations can take to developing such individuals from within, or breeding data science unicorns, as Peter would, would call it. But looking at your background, Peter, I'd say that you yourself could be described as a unicorn. In addition to your years of experience in the water industry, you also hold a bachelor's degree in engineering, an MBA, and a PhD in marketing. I suspect there aren't too many people out there with that combination of skills and qualifications. Oh, and that was exactly my my point of of saying let's breed quote unquote data science unicorns. A lot of the written material about these mythical creatures of data science unicorns comes from people who start from the computer science and statistics point of view from a generic perspective, and and also it seems like some people think that data science is this new invention. But it's not. I've been analyzing data for my whole 30-year career. But early in my career, uh, I had a pencil, a calculator, and a piece of paper. And my data was uh, thousands of pieces of paper in Arch Legal Files. And, and so I've seen that whole evolution of, of data. And when I looked at the Conway's Venn diagram, I, th- I sort of recognized myself in there. Because, yes, I have statistical and, and mathematical knowledge through my engineering degree. I am a subject matter expert because I'm a water engineer. That's, that's who I am. And always had a bit of an affinity with computer science because I started writing computer games in the 19, my little Atari 8-bit computer, got into, got into machine language. And so I had a bit of an affinity with computer science. And when I wrote my PhD, I found out very quickly that Excel couldn't meet my needs because I've, I've developed thousands of spreadsheets, whole jungles of interconnected spreadsheets to, to do what I need to do. But as I got into more advanced statistics to do my research, uh, I decided to use the R language. And then my computer science skills started kicking in all my, my amateurish computer science skills. And yeah, I started to combine those. So that's why 
I believe, to, to breed data science unicorns is to start from people with a certain subject matter expertise to teach them computer science. And together with the real, quote-unquote, computer scientists, I think that, that, forms, that forms a great team. But the subject matter experts need to understand the computer science so we get away from the fear of the black box. And also just ha- understanding computer science creates a lingua franca between the two groups. Uh, ideally, it would, but people have this fear of com- of computer science. I bring my own computer to work because I like working in Linux and Emacs. And my my colleagues look at me weirdly. Oh, why do you use MS DOS? You know, so that, that, <laughs> that they have this idea that it that it's that's doing stuff in the computing way. Because I write I write presentations in the, in in alt mode and Armark, and. My colleagues think that is backward, but I'm actually saying no. It's it's forward thinking. It's let's embrace computer science and and the text editor, and start writing code. And that's what my course and then subsequently the book is all about: to teach people who are subject matter experts to lose that fear of writing code. We were using S plus for statistics when I was an undergrad, and as you know, S plus was the forerunner for R. And back in those days there didn't exist a Windows version of S+. So in order to use it, you had to have a Linux computer. So it involved going into this Linux lab on campus. And I think there were like two Linux labs on the whole of the ANU campus. And I remember thinking, why am I using this horrible antiquated system? And now I actually have my own Linux computer and I prefer using it to the Windows computer. And it's 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 a realization about the awesome power it gives you to just write in plain text. And I'm just, I'm running a next series of courses now, and the, the part that I always enjoy is the first session that I run, and I have some slides, uh, which is a, an image of a real spreadsheet that I had to reverse engineer to make some changes. And the spreadsheet had been around for probably a few decades, and I had to start drawing arrows on it and trying to figure out how all these cells were linked to each other, and then. Uh, in the next slide, I actually show the students who don't know any code yet um, what it looks like in code, and and I and I walk them through it as a, as a logic to say here's a story that's written for you that I can follow, rather than arrows pointing everywhere, and I do it in R, I do it in Python, and I do it in Julia to show that they're all the same really. It's just the semicolon goes in a different spot. Yeah, and and that's I think that opens a few eyes that to to mo- remove the fear for code and to show that you're really writing a story about the steps of your analysis. What was that term you used in your book? Uh, literate coding? Is that right? Oh, lit- lit- literate programming, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's the, the next step, which is uh, what I used to write in the data science book, is where you combine text and code together. And uh, there are various systems, um, Sweeve when you write in LaTeX, or there's R Markdown, which is very popular. Um, I use org mode in Emacs, but the beauty of that is you can write your prose in, in a markdown language, uh, and then you have computer code, and then you can choose to either insert, uh, include the source code or not, or include the output or not. And so it's, it's ideal to write code that documents itself, and it's very popular among our programmers. It's, it's, a, bit like, it's a bit like Python, uh, what's it called in Python? The Jupyter Notebooks. Jupyter, that's it, yeah. Yeah, it's very popular among data scientists in Python as well. Yeah, and it's literal programming is a term by by the god of computer science, Donald Knuth. Who, um, oh yeah. Um, so he came up with that way before the technology existed to even implement it. Yeah, I'm fascinated by those computer scientists who come up with ideas before it's even possible. It's like Alan Turing. The idea of a Turing machine just 
it just blows my mind because this guy came up with it before what we consider to be a computer even existed. Yeah, and doing that just in his mind or with pieces of paper. Just and that's why that's what I love about the history. Of, I watch a lot of YouTube clips about across the old engineers who were involved in the seventies and the sixties, or uh, and the list, the Lisp language, and those sort of things. Because it really teaches you the principles of what a computer is, really. And a lot of people have lost that because they're just clicking on a screen with a mouse. And talking about magic, Windows and Apple, they're like magic tricks because they show you a world that doesn't exist. This illusion that you have a file that you drag from one place to another. But what it does, it actually obfuscates what the computer really does. Oh, that's the reason why I prefer Linux to Windows, because it removes some level of that obfuscation. Exactly right. Yeah, you're actually computing. You're not clicking on buttons. I enjoy computing, and I'm, I'm trying to get that passion back. Yeah, a friend of mine or former colleague of what mine once said, the difference between Windows and Linux is with Windows, he was asking himself, can I do this task in Windows? Whereas with Linux, he was asking himself, okay, how can I do this task yeah. in Linux? That's a great example, yes. And people are scared of Linux. I'm trying to get my business here, uh, install the Linux server, you know, on cloud or on-premise, um, and they're just scared of it. So <laughs> I've, had, I've had several meetings, but I, I want to move to the professional RStudio version. And it only runs on oh, security, and we have no skills. I was terrified of Linux until I worked at a workplace where the majority of people use Linux. And then I really tried to learn it. And now it's like, this is so much better than Windows. I know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've been using Linux for 25 years and I would never go back to it. To go back to what we were talking about before, given your background in engineering, what led you to also pursue qualifications in a social science discipline such as marketing? Yeah, so there's an interesting anecdote for that. So just after I finished my engineering degree, I did an arts degree um, just for fun. And when people ask me why I did it, and I, and I majored in philosophy, it took me 10 years to do because my answer was, I like studying useless things. It just, it just was my development. But then I realized, well, if I want to progress my career, I should do this thing called an MBA, uh, one stage. And then my employer had a really good offer on, on helping funding it. So I just jumped into it, and it was a regional MBA at La Trobe University. So it was here in Bendigo, weekend lectures, so that was a perfect opportunity, and I just jumped into it. My very first subject was marketing by the late Professor Red Walker, and he asked everybody, why do you do marketing? And my answer was, it's a compulsory subject. I'm an engineer. I don't need, I don't need marketing, because <laughs> that's the sort of answers I give. Um, but Red was very gracious, and he said, okay, I'll convince you that you're right. And he was the most inspirational lecturer lecturer I've ever had. And going through the MBA, I sort of did a few research subjects. I enjoy doing research. And although I always thought that somebody with a PhD is somebody who's very good at something really unimportant, like very because you have to be very focused, I thought maybe I should do lecturing. And then the professor said, well, you have to do, you have to have a PhD or at least do one. So well, how, can, how, how can that be? So I just jumped into that. <laughs> and, and I picked the subject of marketing. But I combined it with management. So my, my, my subject area was customer centricity because within my uh, industry at that time, people started talking about being a customer centric rather than behaving like a government entity. So it was a good research topic. There was you know, nothing had been done before. And, uh, yeah, and, and through that, I got in touch with uh, data science because one of my colleagues, who's now one of my staff members, Jenny, said to me, 
hey, you should look at this thing called data science. I think you'd find it really. So this was probably about 2010 or 11. And thought, ooh, data and science. I never thought you could put those two together. Uh, and did, a, did an online course through Coursera with uh, John Hopkins University and fell in love with it. Obviously, had you not done that marketing degree, you probably would never have had that conversation that led you to, to discover data science at that time. But do you think that what you learned as part of your marketing degree has made you a better data scientist? Absolutely, because because I am an engineer, which is fully the physical sciences. Uh, so I fully embrace that. I understand physics and I can do all that sort of mathematics. Through my arts degree, I already started getting an affinity with also the qualitative side of life because not everything can be fully expressed in numbers. But I didn't really have a grasp on what that means. Now, in my marketing is this nice gray area between quantitative and qualitative. And there's a lot of really good statistics out there to, to how do you look at a customer survey, for example. So, uh, and that's, uh, that started fascinating me and I, and I researched that in my dissertation. And the thing that I'm most proud of of my dissertation is really the, the, the part where I merged qualitative and quantitative uh, aspects of data and using data science to, um, to network analysis. For example, uh, I did try some language modeling, but didn't quite work out. But yeah, so that's how I started using those things by not necessarily quantifying the qualitative side, but still recognizing it but expressing in the statistics. So factor analysis to cluster analysis, those sort of techniques. And when I started learning these techniques, that's, that really got, me, really got me interested because that went beyond the typical engineering, which is all time series. How did you in- incorporate network analysis into your analysis? Yeah, that, that was an uh, interesting little inspiration I had to... My problem was I'm a, I'm a water expert and that was a problem in my research because... You can't write a dissertation and, and from your own experience, obviously. Um, so I had to quantify that. So what I did, I started doing some advanced Googling to find all the academic uh, papers about the water industry that mentioned customers in their different forms. And then I downloaded all the abstracts. Um, first, I tried some text analysis on that, some topic analysis, but it didn't really give me anything that I could interpret. So then what I decided to do is manually code these abstracts in topics. And I worked out a method to then create a network of these topics. So if a paper mentions two topics, that's a little bimodal network. And another paper mentions the same topics plus another one and then another one. And if you put it all together, you get quite an interesting diagram of the state of knowledge within that, in this, in this case, about customer centricity. So you're building a knowledge graph of all the information. That's the word, knowledge graph, Yes. I actually had a guest on Alessandro Negro who talked about knowledge graphs. Yeah, I'd love to lo- uh, learn more about that because I sort of intuitively invented this method and it worked out really well because yeah, it allowed me to say this is what the industry knows or doesn't know about this topic rather than relying on my own expertise. Um, I also use it for, I did interviews as well. And then the interviews use topic analysis. So that's manual labeling, not not automated. Um, also, just visualize that in the network because it was just the easiest way. In the preface of your new book, Data Science for Water Utilities, you state that your motivation for writing this book is to breed data science unicorns by introducing water professionals to using code to solve problems. What inspired that motivation? What inspired that motivation was my experience through my dissertation and starting to analyze data in the R language instead instead of spreadsheets. Through that experience, fully converted code is uh, superior to, to a spreadsheet for anything that's repetitive. 
Also, what is happening in the industry, there's a lot of interest in using data science within my industry. But the problem is, there are probably more solutions than there are problems. So there's all these vendors out there trying to sell all this stuff. And they talk about AI and machine learning, and they just mix up the terms without any consideration of what it really means. Yeah. And, and they're just presenting it as a, as a magic trick. Again, let's use it as a theme for this. <laughs> and the problem is, a lot of engineers, especially the older ones, are like, oh, I don't want a black box because we want to know how the theme works, right? Um, the thing about engineers, engineers are the people who take their toys apart and then to, to see how they work. And the problem is that we can only really have a conversation with vendors if we understand how it works. We can ask critical questions to these vendors. So that's one motivation. So even, so I tell my students, um, even if you don't end up writing code, I hope that from this, you can at least be able to have a conversation with the data scientists and, and take some of their mythology out of that. Unfortunately, a lot of these vendors, when you ask them about how their product works, they, they seem to hide behind IP, but um, they don't tell you that what they do is all based on open source algorithms. I think as an industry, for us to embrace these new ways of analyzing data, we need to understand this. So I'm, I'm able now to ask critical questions when, when the data science firm comes along and says, hey, we can do this, that, and the other. And I said, well, how does it work? What's, uh, what's, what's the algorithm that you use? What sort of training models have you used? And, and also, engineers within water utilities and, and other professionals analyze a lot of data in spreadsheets. And my, my task through my team is to help my colleagues doing that. Uh, we use Power BI, uh, but there's still a lot of spreadsheets being used. And uh, I've already convinced some of my colleagues to start uh, writing R code. That do, they do water quality analysis for, for ad hoc things. It's just, a, it's just a better way of doing things. And then we can share scripts and, and we can critique them because they're a, lot more res- they're a lot more resilient than a spreadsheet. What you said a few moments ago about all these tools that you can use for water analysis, how the salespeople hide behind IP, but they're really open source under the hood. I've found if you know the particular packages for performing a particular type of analysis well enough, you can actually figure it out just by the output. Yeah, I've done that to a degree. And there's there's an interesting development. So one of the things in, in sewer networks. So one of the problems for sewer networks is roots growing into it and they start blocking up or they collapse because they're old. And one of the things that water utilities do, we send a little robot camera in there and assess the condition. That's the unenviable task of every graduate engineer is to go through hours and hours and hours of footage. And then we use it to find cracks, etc. Now there are now, obviously image recognition is a perfect tool for that. And, and there are companies that sell that software um, but really what they're selling is the training data. We help them train the data uh, because the algorithm is almost off the shelf. There's a colleague at another utility in Melbourne said in a weekend, they slapped something together that could almost do it. So really what these companies are selling is, is the training, the data, it's the, uh, and then the algorithms are open. But let's just, have, let's just be open about these conversations and have real, real meaningful chats with these people about how they can improve as well and solve real problems. I've actually seen tools that you know do things like generic image recognition, translation, transcription, all that, and they are just using either the AWS, Microsoft, or Google APIs under the hood. And I can actually spot which ones which because I know the three sets of APIs well enough. And that's and that's and that's fine, but just let's see it. Um, so, so my idea for the data science for data science unicorn is not that they're lying, but but we need to have the 
So the, the, two, re- the, the two reasons are, yeah, um, be more informed in, be informed in the market, but also. Uh, on YouTube, there's a video of a workshop you delivered last year entitled Data Science Unicorn Breeding Program, Teaching Coding Skills to Water Professionals. Oh, is that on YouTube? Oh, yep, it's on YouTube. So clearly this isn't something that you just aspire to do. It's clearly something you've put into practice already. Yes, uh, it started in uh, 2019 or 18 even. So there's an organization called Water Research Australia and we're a member and, and I'm an act- we were always active doing events and stuff. And we started with the idea because I felt a bit lonely and I said, I'd love to talk to other people who, are, who have the same interests as me within my industry and develop these skills. So de- developing a community of interest. Um, but I couldn't find enough people to, to, that were at the same level as I was. So I decided, oh, why don't I do a course? <laughs> Create my own friends, if you like. And that course grew and grew. And yeah, I've done workshops now and, and, and talks in five continents. There's a lot of wow. interest. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of interest. And I'm, and I'm in the middle of a, a series now. It's, it's fun to teach because yeah, for a lot of people, it's totally they're entering into. So what's involved in your training courses? The book is really the, is the course. How the book developed is I started writing my own course notes. And what I decided to do is very different to most coding books. So this is not a coding book where you start learning about a lot of abstract stuff in the first few chapters before you start writing something interesting. I go straight into it. After just telling them about the basics of how to do arithmetic and those sort of things and what a console is and what a script is, I have a little case study about uh, calculating the flow through a weir in a channel, which is a very, it's a first year civil engineering problem that most people that do the course with, um, from a theoretical perspective, but then for how do you solve this? How do you then write a function for this? But, and all the examples are water-based because I'm, I'm sick of analyzing iris leaves and <laughs> <laughs> cars from the 1970s and those sort of data sets. Yeah, Boston housing prices. <laughs> yeah. So, so all my data sets, they are synthetic because it is very hard to get data sets based on my, which is probably my next point. And so I create all these data sets. I've got water quality data and it's real life stuff. So in the first course, for example, so that's, which is, it starts from the absolute beginnings all the way to creating a automated PowerPoint presentation that links. To, and I did it that way because people who do the first course, at least they can see the full workflow. They're not to the left hanging somewhere in teaching millions of functions. I'm starting level two tomorrow, and that goes into more in the statistics. So doing basis linear regression, cluster analysis. One of the things I really liked about your book is that you take a very pragmatic approach to data science. That's that's exactly my point. And A, that's how it evolved because I'm, I'm here to solve problems. I'm not, here to, I'm not here to do research. Also, that's always been my approach as an engineer. Solve a problem with whatever data is available. And I know that's what my what my colleagues uh, enjoy, but also talking to the publisher. As I was writing it, I sort of spoke to the my contact over there, and he said, "Well, I said this is turning out to be quite a generic data science book. Uh, could you market it wider?" And he said, "No, we need to have industry specific books because there are so many data science books that are very generic, and I think there's room. I'm pretty sure within other industries, be specific about. Uh, I would love to read a book about agricultural science. What?" Data science techniques, do you find that keep coming up again and again in the water industry? Yeah, the book doesn't really, or the course doesn't really express that. The techniques are, they're quite generic. The vast majority of the data in a, in a water company or gas, electricity, any sort of utility is time series. Yeah. 
whether that be customer compliance, whether that be pressure and water quality parameters and the hundreds of those, they're all time series. So time series modeling is, is quite an essential skill, which I haven't added to the course because it goes too deep. Things like cluster analysis that don't happen often, that's more in the marketing space. I'm working with the customer team here to look at better segmentation using some modeling. Techniques that we that need to be introduced a bit more are um, anomaly detection. Because, you know, a water utility, the ideal water utility is invisible to the customer. Do you know anything about, you open a tap, a water comes out. I, I don't assume, unless you're a technology nerd that you really care or, or interested in what happens beyond the tap. As long as the water comes out, I'm happy. And that's fine. But there's a massive world of complexity behind that, which I love. I dwell in that. And what I'm proud of is that we can deliver you that experience that you never notice anything. So anomaly detection is, and I have a deal now with Latrobe University. We have selected a PhD candidate in Sri Lanka who's going through the paperwork to get to country. We sponsor that person and that's a PhD in anomaly detection. Oh, cool. Because anomalies are the most important, whether they are short-term predictive anomalies or so that we can manipulate our network to prevent anomalies from happening or to, and that's, when you, when you boil down to it, that's pretty much what we do. Looking at data and say, there's a spike. What do we do about that? Both time series analysis and anomaly detection are two topics that are not typically taught in your introduction to machine learning type course. Yeah, interesting, because I've never done any formal education in data science. So this is a whole chapter in the book, or there's a substantial part of the book to talk because that's really what we do. You, know, you measure a bunch of pressures and how often is it less than 20 uh, water pressure, for example. That's a, those are the things that we live for as, as water engineers, keeping that process ticking over so that people can have their showers without thinking about well, When I did my master's, I don't think we did any anomaly detection. And time series analysis actually came up in machine learning for trading, which was applying data science algorithms to financial data. So, yeah, most of the stuff that I read is, is about that sort of data. And, and here's the other issue where, where data science becomes. And we deal with a real physical reality. We have sensors out there in the field who get hit by lawnmowers, who are in frost or plus 40 degrees. They get soaked by water. So there's a lot of issues out there. It's, it's quite a lot of work to maintain all these sensors. So our data is not 100% reliable. If, if I look at trading data, that is the data. There's no, there's no variance on that. If I, if I look at a, a computer network, can measure at 100% um, bid rates and whatever you guys look at. But this, this is a complicating aspect of looking at reality. So uh, data quality is part of the nominee. So if we measure a pH of zero, then all wrong with the probe. I think that there should be more attention to that, not just our industry, any industry that deals with physical assets. Um, you're probably aware in, in the book, uh, I talk about the DIKW pyramid, the data information wisdom pyramid. Oh, yeah. That's been... Yeah bandied around a lot well i have my own version uh, i have removed wisdom because you study philosophy to find that yep. not data science and i added reality at the bottom and that's what a lot of data scientists and analysis in general forget data science talks about a real reality um, even if you talk about banking or uh, um, stock exchange under the those numbers of the stock exchange is a reality of companies collapsing or being or redditors pumping up uh, prices. Or, so th there's always a reality underneath, underneath the data. And uh, as a pragmatic engineer, that's always what I look at. What am I really analyzing? And my team, uh, so I'm a civil engineer. I build stuff 
all over the world, pipelines. Uh, one of my guys, Gary, he's a, he, honest, he, he has also has a similar background. But I have two IT professionals who don't fully understand this. So we're now doing data excursions. A few weeks ago, we went to the reservoirs and we spoke to the reservoir keepers. What data do you collect? What does it look like in reality? Where are these sensors? What, how do you measure this flow? So that they actually see where the data comes from. And it's not just an abstract number on the screen. A couple of jobs ago, this was about, I don't know, five or 10 years ago, I worked for WorkSafe Victoria, which does the workers' compensation insurance in Victoria. I was the premium pricing manager there. And if someone wrote in and had an inquiry about their premium or how their premium was calculated, I was the person who they got to speak to that person. So to write the letter and I'd go out to meet with these customers. It was only when I actually saw those customers face to face and heard about what the impact was of the premiums that I set that I really understood that these weren't just numbers on a computer screen. These were actually numbers that would translate into money that these people would have to pay and it could actually impact on the sustainability of a business. That's a great example, yeah. And that's RoboDepth is a perfect example of taking numbers in abstract reality without thinking about what it means. Yeah, I reckon if they had have taken the data scientists who developed that RoboDebt algorithm out into the field to speak to those people who are complaining, it would have been fixed a lot faster because suddenly it stops being a number, it starts being a person's face. Yeah, and it's worth qualitative information, it's the quantitative information. Yeah, can't exactly. keep stressing how, yeah, how important that is to that. Un- so numbers can explain stuff, but only qualitative information is a subtle but important difference. Yeah, and one of the things I love in your your first book, The Principles of Strategic Data Science, you give an example of all these different layouts of dots that all have the same mean and standard deviation, and they're all completely different. You're my favorite data set, yeah. One of them's just your standard scatter plot of dots, and one of them looks like a dinosaur. Yeah, the Datasaurus. I want a t-shirt. I want a t-shirt of the Datasaurus. It's one of my favorite visualizations. I'm teaching data science next semester. That visualization is going to appear on my slides. Right. Yeah, it's a great paper. Read the original, but there's quite a bit of... Uh... So how many times have you delivered your data science unicorn program? Close to a dozen, I think. I have a record somewhere. They keep coming back. There's people on the wait list at the moment, so they're talking about the next session. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of ready for the next thing, really. It's not turned into the book. I'm planning to do the uh, video content of the course and put, just put it on my website to deliver it all the time. I, I get bored with my own challenges and then I need to move to something different. So I'll put that on my website. Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe also a way to sell the book, but just put the, the screencasts on my website with a little water problems. And what I'm interested in now, and, and also other people in my industry, there's more and more data scientists, is um, there are not enough data sets, like example problems for our industry to play with. So I had to, I had to synthesize data. But now I find there are some data sets, but uh, Kaggle or and other machine learning data repositories have nothing. There's almost nothing there about water or water quality or water resource, which is a really important problem because the world is running out of water or we're using too much, whichever way you want to look. So I love to get together and I've got lots of international So hopefully we can set up a repository for water data and get non-water experts interested in things, maybe a Kaggle competition. So that's, I think that's my next chapter. I was interviewing two women who are involved in environmental science a few episodes ago. And when I mentioned to them that I was interviewing a man from the water industry, 
their first question was, when is this interview and how can they get how can they get hold of it? Because so there are people out there who are very interested in water. And I'd say given the high interest a lot of people have in environmental sciences nowadays, water is very close to that. It obviously plays a big role in the environment and in our own life. And we work very closely with environmental science. Unfortunately, I didn't have sort of room to manage a case study in there. We do work with, um, there are not-for-profit groups uh, who come to us and ask for data. About, For example, we have excellent data about pesticides, and so we can freely share that. But it wouldn't be lovely if we had a data repository for where all water utilities just freely provide that data. There are no secrets as far as I'm concerned. There's a little bit of hesitance where groups like those environmental groups can get their data, where people who are interested and want to develop a product can get, we can organize a hackathon. So that's, that's, that's my, that's on my wish list. Collect data, case studies, get people to share more, yeah, see, see how we can develop that further. I could also imagine this would be of great value if you're considering water data sets from developing countries where they don't have clear water coming out of their taps. Yeah, and that's that's a, a, a great challenge. If those data sets are available, perhaps entrepreneurs or, or startups can. We've um, we've done some work with with my organisation, Colourbourne Water in, in Vietnam, to provide drinkable water out of the tap. There's a lot of interest, and some of my colleagues went to Ghana. There's a lot of work happening, and and perhaps uh, data science can play a role in that to also help these people yeah, to get better at analysing their own data. Data science for social good type thing. And what is actually amazing, a lot of people don't realize that Africa, uh, we have this idea of Africa still as a dark continent, but uh, mobile technology, they have actually leapfrogged us. So they went straight to mobile technology. Mobile payments are, are quite normal there. I've seen some presentations by African water utilities, so really advanced. Legend has it that unicorns possess magical powers. So I think it's very appropriate that you two have an interest in theatrical magic. In fact, in addition to writing about data science, you're also the author of the book Perspectives on Magic, Scientific Views of Theatrical Magic. I think this is incredibly exciting. When I was a kid, my dream career was to be a stage magician. So I used to do magic shows for my parents and family members and anyone who I could get to sit down in front of me for half an hour or more. And when I was in grade six, I remember reading about a school for professional magicians that had opened in Melbourne, and that was my tertiary education plan. Can you tell us a bit about your interest in magic? Well, my backstory is just like yours. So I used to annoy all my friends. I even started doing some performances for external people, and I was quite serious about it, but my interest in magic sort of waxed and waned through my life course as magicians call it, getting distracted by life. So I went back for magic because I sort of saw it as a bit of a futile, um, cheesy exercise because you know, magic has that risk of being cheesy. But then um, it's about 2006, I think. Uh, somebody asked me, my in-laws asked me, can you do a magic show for the kids? I thought, all right, let's, let's try this thing out again and develop a full 45-minute magic show for kids. It's, it still has my interest. And when I was doing literature research for my dissertation, looking at training, uh, management training, I found this paper about using magic tricks for magic, and I totally got distracted. Um, and during my PhD, I wrote this book of scientific views of, on magic, because the more I started looking and having access, I found hundreds of papers about, most of them psychology, about how, you know, why can we be the history of magic, the anthropology of magic, how interact with each other. 
perspectives from from theater studies, obviously. So the book is pretty much a uh, an annotated bibliography, and computer science plays a role in that. There's been a few papers written about that because a lot of magic tricks use mathematics to to actually create the illusion of magic. What magic really is is that there's there's, there's two things happening. There's whatever the processes that you see, and there's a process that's hidden from you. There are interesting bits of magic, number theory, and also geometry and topology that are counterintuitive. And when you use those, then you create a magical outcome with a bit of presentation skill. And there is a a really interesting website, uh, computer science for fun, c4fn.org. This is a whole website dedicated to computer science and a really interesting paper from early 90s, I think. I can't pronounce the guy's name, but it was about how I mentioned earlier, how a computer interface is really a magic. It's an illusion that you think you're dragging an actual physical folder from one file from one folder to another. And he, and he talked about how perhaps if computer interface designers can learn from magicians on how, how to make those. And there are, there are magicians such as Marco Tempest from Switzerland. Uh, look him up on YouTube. His stuff is fantastic. It's, it's high-tech magic uh, with, with iPhones and all sorts of things. So there, there's quite a bit of uh, overlap in computer science. And, and my interest at the moment is, is mainly index and topology and optical illusions. I'm writing a book about, I've written some e-books about certain magic tricks that that have been around for a while and did some historic research and worked topologically. It's just just fun to to play with with these concepts. A few minutes ago, you said something about using magic tricks for management training. How yes. does that work? Well, it's just a great team building thing to get a group of people together and teach them how to cut a rope and then restore it again. Uh, and, and then with an analogy behind it, you can, you can make it up as you go along almost. A lot of magicians actually make good money by performing at corporate events. A little act that I'm working on is, is magic and innovation. What's really fascinating for me to read, I'm more not, not like a magic scholar than a, a performing magician, is how magicians actually innovate. Some, some, some mathematician comes up with a prince magician and says, oh, I can use that. And then you can see that because all the literature is now scanned and online. And yeah, businesses can learn from how magicians innovate. To be a good innovator, you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to fall flat on your face. Now, every magician, and you will have that experience, has died on stage. So yeah. You do. So, right. So, so here's an analogy how you can tell a magic story, do a magic trick with it, and say, well, if you want to be a good innovator, be willing to die and, and, and make a fool of yourself. So that's those sort of things, I think, are the, the lessons that the world perhaps can learn. When I was doing my PhD, I lectured for several years, and now I'm back at it. And that was, I think, one of the best skills I learned. You inevitably die on stage. And someone will point out, hey, you just messed up that problem that you did on the whiteboard. Uh, getting through that without bursting into tears or running off in embarrassment felt valuable life skill. Exactly right. And that's, that's the, anyone who's done magic will have a great presentation because being able to make the best out of it and yourself. So it's, it's just part of my life. Uh, I'm going to Las Vegas to do a one-week intensive course for, it's for professional magicians, um, but uh, yeah, it's just fun, fun to be in, uh, among other magicians and see how they think. And they have totally different lives than, than we have. And it's, it's just this little hidden world that, that's fun to be part of. I'd like to pick up on your comment about mathematicians as innovators, because it actually reminds me of something that a previous guest was telling me about, how his company would often take academic research and then innovate on that to produce a commercial product. If you're a data scientist who was wanting to learn innovation skills from a magician, what would be the first steps to take in doing that? 
when you look at how, how magic tricks are created, a lot of magicians create their own stuff. And their creativity is just like any other art form, really, is it starts with playing, goalless playing, muck around with uh, props for data science that will be marked with some code, not, not have a purpose in mind. Also, put some time aside. When I was in a, in a previous job, I, I always carved out uh, time. I still try to do that Friday afternoons as I play and say, oh, what about... Uh, what if I visualize this data this way? Is that is that is that useful? For, and then half the time, nothing comes out of it. But yeah, sometimes some really good stuff comes out of that play. And and some of the best things that I developed in an other business for more than ten years came came about from that. And as we said earlier, not not being afraid of failure. So goal is play, but also when you design design a magic act. Or, I'm not a magic designer, but the people who are really good at it and jay sankey from cancer is an amazingly creative magician and he talks about don't worry don't worry about the methods set out a goal that you want to achieve and then and then sort of work backwards on what it is that you let's say my goal would be i want to have an algorithm that solves a certain problem then then set set that goal and then work out what tools and and just keep chipping away at it but yeah failure is always an option is there anything on your radar in the AI data and analytics space that you think is going to become important in the next three to five years? Yes. Um, everybody's talking about generative AI, of course, the, the topic of the day. I think it's going to be important in, in different ways. But what I think generative AI can be very good at is solving this problem. Within my organization, we have really good data. It's generated a massive suite of insightful reports. Most of my colleagues don't even know that they've forgotten about it or wasn't intended for them in the first place. So here's my vision that uh, we are Power BI users. What I want is to go into Power BI and just say, which town had the highest number of water quality complaints last financial year? Bang, a graph shows up. That's, uh, and, and I know, you know, not exactly, but I think how it would work, but I could sort of envisage that it's within the realm of possibility with a lot. Because we have so much data now, <laughs> so many reports, nobody has time to look. And that's, uh, and that's also part of the PhD research that we're starting, is anomaly detection as a method to sort of wade through the multitude of reports so that my colleagues don't have to. So we have 19 water systems, 19 water treatment plants. So for now, them to monitor that, they have to look at reports and graphs. And, but if we have an anomaly detection tool that can be smart about it, we can display anomalies to them and forget about the rest. I think that'd be useful not just for data, but for knowledge in general. Because if I think of some of the larger organizations I've worked at in the past, most organizations now have something like a SharePoint repository or some sort of knowledge management system, and you can never find anything in it. Yes. Yeah, my, my manager, so when ChatGPT became popular, um, we did a little competition. I asked ChatGPT a water management question and our executives, and we had a scoring system. The executives still won. So the humans, but only just. <laughs> so then I, the challenge was put to me, oh, can we just run this language model over all our garbage, really, on our shared drives? And, and I said, well, potentially we could, if, if you have spend enough computing power, you could train a model on all the stuff you have sitting on your... So I started toy, toying with fine-tuning GT, but not enough time to do that. I'm not sure if it's that useful yet, but I could see them moving there. I think Microsoft has a plan to make that possible for everyone going forward. Yeah, anything that's stored in Azure. And what final advice would you give to data scientists looking to create business value from data? Yeah, start with a real-life problem. If you're interested in a certain industry, let's say environmental management, there's lots of problems out there that you could be. But most importantly, and we mentioned before, is to 
understand the re- physical reality of what this, or the social reality, what it is that you do with. Go, go beyond the numbers, go out in the field and maybe even take some samples yourself. For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in contact, what can they do? I uh, jump on LinkedIn. I'm on there. Uh, if you Google Peter Prevost, um, you probably get very close to my website, uh, lucidmanager.org or peterprevost.com is my uh, landing page. And on the Lucid Manager website, w- whenever I feel like uh, writing stuff, I'll be on there. So my course, et cetera, will be on that. And I can put a link to that in the show notes. That'd be nice. Thank you very much for joining me today. No, it was fun, Genevieve. And for those in the audience, thank you for listening. I'm Dr. Genevieve Hayes, and this has been Value Driven Data Science, brought to you by Genevieve Hayes Consulting.